All right, welcome to another episode of White Collar Crimes, where we show you the only color that truly matters in the criminal justice system is green. I'm Ryan Horn, your host. Going to talk tonight about funeral home scams. You wouldn't think uh, anybody could sink that low, but uh, as we've seen several times throughout the history of this podcast, uh, people are quite capable of sinking this low when it comes to uh, making money. This is a particular case, probably some of you might have seen on American Greed. This case that we will be discussing was uh, featured on that show. It's the show that's on CNBC. It's a case of Attorney J. Douglas Cassidy, known as the Bernie Madoff of funeral scams. Now, let's face it, most of us listening here have lost a loved one at some time or other. It's a very painful and stressful event, one of the most painful and stressful events you pretty much will have in your life a lot of times. But at least if you have a good funeral plan and it's well taken care of, that's at least some stress and pain that can be removed and relieved a little. A little peace of mind can be given. So the last thing you probably think when you put together your funeral home plan that you're being scammed. But that's exactly what Mr. Cassidy sought out to do. And uh, we'll see in a little bit, he did pretty well with it for a while. You know, it is a very costly event. You know, it's certainly not cheap. Funeral homes these days, it's not uncommon to hear them going for north of $10,000. It's a very costly event. So people invest that much money, they expect and deserve to get a certain amount of quality, you know, to say goodbye to their loved ones. You know, grave robbers, they're considered among the lowest of the low when you talk about criminals. They're on the low rung level. I would say probably child sex offenders are at the bottom and probably just barely a rung or two above would be your grave robbers. But in a sense, that's really what uh, Cassidy and his crew were. He was pretty much a sleazy attorney throughout his career. Uh, He started out in Missouri, you know, he's a Missouri native. He was had a reputation as a very flamboyant uh, attorney there in Missouri, but he did make quite a name for himself back in the 1970s through the 1980s. But he began to, over time, start to gather a reputation for shady financial deals. And I know that's kind of hard for some people to believe that an attorney would be involved in something shady, but yeah, it uh, does happen. And For those of you maybe that are listening from other countries, I'm being sarcastic. (laughs) In this country, uh, unfortunately, attorneys do not always have the best of reputations. Know a lot of good ones through my, you know, several years working in the criminal justice system, and I'd say the overwhelming majority of them are very good. But unfortunately, there are some like this that give a bad name to, to a lot of them. Like I said, he began his legal career in Springfield, Missouri, which is pretty much near the heart and center of Missouri. And he quickly kind of made a lot of good uh, connections around the courtroom, a lot of business connections, and importantly, a lot of political connections. And he started to dabble in real estate and uh, got pretty good at it, made himself quite a decent fortune. You know, it's a good investment right now, I think, to make. Uh, You can never go wrong, you know, owning property of some sort. But later, the FBI and the IRS would find that he was tied to over 100 businesses, which he mainly used as tax shelters. 
And despite his large business portfolio, which included also a utility company, he was known not to pay his debts to his creditors. He did pretty well for himself off the money he was making, had a pretty decent-sized home in Springfield, Missouri, worth, you know, a couple, two or three hundred thousand dollars, which, you know, 40 years ago, you know, it'd probably be worth, oh, you know, over half a million now. So very nice home, doing pretty well for himself. And despite court orders to pay his creditors, uh, Mr. Cassidy refused to do so. But finally, the IRS and the FBI caught up to him. And in December 1981, he was convicted of conspiracy and tax fraud. Of course, with the felony conviction, when his ability to practice law and his law of law license was revoked, and again, he was uh, barred from practicing law. He served about half of his six-month sentence, does about three months in prison, and following his release from prison, relocates to St. Louis, which, as I've said, is uh, probably the closest big city to where I broadcast from. It's just less than two hours away from where I'm at. But prison did not seem to reform Mr. Cassidy, and not only would he return to his scheming ways, he would amp them up to a whole new level. And at this time, he gets the uh, crazy idea to start the National Prearranged Services, NPS for short. And this idea was sold as a prearranged funeral in which 80% of the customer's money was put into a trust and later to cover the funeral costs. The deal would allow Cassidy and his business partners to keep the remaining 20% to, quote, cover their costs. But as they would later find out, Cassidy and his cronies were investing these funds for themselves rather than investing the funds for the client into a well-deserved and, you know, well-invested-in funeral for a loved one. A violation of trust, and that's something we've told you is one of the key components of white-collar crime throughout this uh, throughout this podcast, since we've been doing it on white-collar crime. That is a key component of it. You know, in order for a white-collar crime to occur, there has to be some violation of trust. Somebody trusts somebody to you know, do something that they pay money for and, you know, it's not done right or it's done fraudulently and that trust is violated. That is one of the key components that happens in white-collar crime and this is one of the biz- biggest examples of it. When you trust somebody to take care of a funeral for you, for a loved one that you've put money into that you expect is going to go into a trust and be invested and put forth for that time, You just trust that will happen. But unfortunately for folks that did this business with Mr. J. Cassidy, that did not happen. And he was living quite well. Again, had a nice home. Uh, Later found out had a lot of nice sporty cars. You know, a lot of other real estate holdings and investments that he was doing with people's money that were supposed to go for funerals. So uh, he was doing pretty well, you know, violating trust. And you probably ask yourself, well, who would trust a sleazy attorney like that that had done time in prison? Who would trust a business like that? Well, that's the creative thing he did to get involved in this business. As a convicted felon, he certainly could not sell any type of financial services or offer any type of investments or anything like that. He would not be allowed. You know, state and federal regulations would not allow him licensing for 
a career like that. But he, there are no laws that prevent somebody operating as a consultant. And that's exactly what he did. The business was in the name of his sons and his wife and, you know, a few other partners. And he, even though he was the brains and the chief driving operating force of this scam, he was a consultant only as far as in the legal sense for this business. So a lot of people probably did not know that they were investing this money with a sleazy attorney that was a convicted felon, you know, a tax cheat, a tax fraud, you know, uh, did not pay his creditors, anything like that. Again, a lot of people probably didn't know that. Had they known that, they may not have invested in his scam. But unfortunately, a lot of people did. They found out later that it was called, uh, it was owned mostly by a company known as RBT Trust Two. And again, the beneficiaries were Cassidy's wife and two sons. So Cassidy didn't just swindle the customers, he also swindled the funeral homes. The funeral homeowners were probably, in a sense, as victimized uh, as the people who bought these trusts. People that bought the NPS investment and the trust were protected by certain state in the state of Missouri, state insurance insurance laws that basically guaranteed this investment to an extent. But the funeral homeowners, they were hung out to dry to pay the difference in this case. So between the small insurance payments a lot of times that were made in the initial investment, the actual cost of the funeral, which we know, you know, is rising every day. Like I said, it is not uncommon now to see funerals north of $10,000. I would say in my area here in the rural Midwest where I'm at, probably most of them are, yeah, eight, ten, eleven thousand $11,000 average, somewhere in there, depending on, you know, how much, you know, people really want to put into it. Some people like simple, some people go for more elaborate, but I would say in the middle and the average is somewhere in that neighborhood there. So that left the funeral home to eat the cost because legally they could not get away with this. So the funeral homes were the ones that truly lost the money in this scam. And one funeral homeowner in Springfield, the lady that owned and operated it, told the Springfield News leader that they had to eat the cost of a few thousand fraudulent contracts that were done with this business. You know, hard to stay afloat. You know, there's a lot of overhead in funeral business. And, you know, we all know right now if this scam were going on, it would certainly be tough because everything is rising right now in cost. And, you know, you can't afford to lose any money on anything right now. But that's what was happening. And... Funeral homes were hit even harder uh, by this scam than, you know, the normal economic challenges that they face. And in nearby Mount Vernon, Illinois, which is probably about 45 minutes or so from where I'm at here, roughly, give you know, maybe 45, 50 minutes. There was also a home, a funeral home that was victimized in this fashion and, you know, had to, again, just eat some of these contracts and lose thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars. And again, we know, you know, any of you that have operated a business, it's hard to turn a profit, you know, especially the first few years of a business. And uh, in this case, they had to eat this money because of a scam. And that Springfield owner, that's when she dubbed Mr. Cassidy the Bernie Madoff of Missouri. And he kind of became known as, you know, the Bernie Madoff of funeral home scams. It's not a real common white-collar crime, but unfortunately there are others. We may talk about some other ones down the road, but this is the big one, you know, kind of like Bernie Madoff is the big 
white collar criminal out there and you know the benchmark case for white collar crime this is the benchmark case if you will for uh funeral home scams but the feds had long been on his trail and by 1994 the state of missouri did win a 20 million dollar settlement against cassidy but as we found that was probably a drop in the bucket because he had scammed you know thousands and thousands of people off this money and he was able to you know probably get this in his petty cash drawer and continue to operate but in this case even with the 20 million dollars anytime Cassidy was ordered by a court to pay up for taxes you know scams anything that he was involved in he always claimed that he just didn't have any money he was broke and only had a few assets. He tried it here, and as we later see, he tried to claim that uh, even when he was sentenced uh, for these crimes that he actually committed when he finally did get brought to justice on us, which we'll see here in a little bit. But the audits of his spending habits, you know, that revealed a little bit otherwise. As I said a little bit ago, he was living high on the hog, had several, you know, elaborate homes, lots of business investments, Fancy luxury cars, millions of dollars in the bank. You know, he certainly had it, but he claimed every time that, you know, he was actually broke, that that was, uh, you know, just a mirage, so to speak. And, you know, he claimed all the time that he didn't actually have any money. But he was finally criminally charged for this scam. And it was later discovered that he had scammed customers out of hundreds of millions of dollars. Not just a few million but hundreds of millions, you know, not Bernie Madoff letter where we're talking billions, but we are talking, you know, here mostly in the rural Midwest. St. Louis is a decent sized city, but a lot of people he scammed were not from, you know, the city. Like I said, Mount Vernon, Illinois here, a town that, you know, was featured on the uh, episode that was on MSNBC about this case. It's not a a big town, maybe 17, 18,000, I think, you know, I mean, not a huge town. So a lot of people were, scammed all over hundreds of millions of dollars so for you know an area like this here in missouri and rural southern illinois and whatnot that's pretty big case a lot of money and he eventually was sentenced for this scam to nine years in federal prison which is not really that much when you consider you're talking hundreds of millions of dollars but that is one of the things we do talk about a lot on this show that they do not oftentimes face any type of severe stiff uh prison sentence uh Sometimes they don't see justice at all. We've seen the W.R. Grace Company we talked about early on in this show, the asbestos folks in Montana. Nobody went to prison or jail for that. Uh, A lot of times, very few people do. Nobody that I'm aware of went to prison for the Ford Pinto scandal, even though there were deaths involved in that case. So, you know, nine years for, you know, scamming people out of hundreds of millions of dollars, that's a pretty light sentence, especially considering he was already a convicted felon at that time. He'd already been to prison for... You know, tax uh, tax fraud, cheating the government and scamming and whatnot. Uh, it's not like, you know, a lot of times when somebody gets in trouble the first time, if they've got a clean record, the courts generally will go lenient on them the first time around, even if it's, you know, something fairly serious. But in this case, that was not uh, the story. You know, he already had done time in prison, even if it was just a few months. He was a convicted felon. He was a disgraced, disbarred attorney. But overall, he got this, you know, fairly, fairly light sentence. But he was ordered to pay $435 million in restitution. Now, how much was ever paid, nobody really knows. There's nothing 
really on record reported on it, at least not what I was ever able to recover. I don't recall anything mentioned on the episode of American Greed about him ever actually going forward and paying any of this back. But all in all, there were about six sentenced for this scam, including his own son, Brent Cassidy. So he did finally get sent into prison, which there was at least some justice for the people that he scammed and the the owners of the funeral home and and so forth. And in 2017, Mr. Cassidy, this is uh, the elder Cassidy here, Jay Cassidy, the attorney, he petitioned the Bureau of Prisons, that's the Federal Bureau of Prisons, for an early release, he cited some health problems related to heart disease and diabetes. Now, you know, this is not entirely uncommon. I talked about former Illinois Governor George Ryan on a recent case, and, you know, he was granted, you know, an early release because his wife was dying. And then after that, I think he was sent to a halfway house or something. And sometimes there are, when people are near death, they, they will get an early release. He didn't get one in this case, but he did get his early release, not by a lot, But in 2020, because he got sentenced in 2013, so he's pretty close to release time. But he was, uh, in 2020, given an early release. As we all remember, that's just last year, and a lot of people got released from county jails and prisons when the COVID outbreak hit, you know, to kind of slow the spread, so to speak. Amazingly, the Green River Killer in Oregon, one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, barely avoided getting released on parole. I think the parole board vote was like five to four or something uh, to keep him there. But, you know, one more vote flipping the other way and he would have been released because of the uh, COVID scare. So Cassidy was released, age 74. He gets out. Not much is really known for the short time he was out because he was actually in pretty bad health when he was released. And he did die in his apartment in Missouri at the age of 74. So, didn't get to enjoy his freedom very long. You know, maybe that's some justice there. You know, like I said, God does keep score, and maybe that was the uh, the case here. But the damage he's done and the heartbreak, and it, it, it will go on for years and probably is still certainly going on now. Uh, many of these people that uh, had invested in these, the relatives, uh, you know, still might be alive that they put these in. And the funeral homes will continue to have to eat the costs on whatever he has scammed out of this because, you know, just like it was just basically a, a funeral home Ponzi scheme. So when people go to get the money to pay for the funeral or, you know, or when the funeral home tries to collect their part to cover, you know, the cost of putting on the service and everything, that money's not there. You know, just like a classic Ponzi scheme when somebody invests that money and, you know, they want it back after, you know, a certain period of time. Well, it's not there because... The uh, fraudster has, you know, spent it on themselves. Even though the money's supposed to be there and invested in something, it's not. And, you know, that's it's uh, it's one of the it's the most common, pretty much form of white collar crimes that we have. Most of them are, in some sense, some type of Ponzi scheme like that. And that's what this was. Only it was for a funeral home scam. So, hopefully, this never happens to anybody. But be leery. You know, find out. Do a little research on something if you're making an investment like this. Hopefully, you know, you won't be finding out that it's tied to a sleazy convicted felon like this. And unfortunately, we live in an age of information where we can find these things out with the Internet and social media and the you know tools and capabilities that we have. Uh, a lot of people maybe back at the time when he started this scam, you know, we didn't have that technology. So it was a little harder for people to find these things out. 
but it's not now we can find these things out so we'll be careful you know you, you should never have to think and worry about somebody ripping you off on a funeral again that's you know some of the lowest forms of life out there you can have anybody to do that but people do it you know it's just a sad fact of reality that people are willing to try something that sleazy and rip somebody off on a funeral when you know, when you invest money in a funeral, you deserve peace of mind because any of us that have been through funerals, we know it's stressful, it's depressing, it's a hard day, it's a long day, and the last thing you should have to worry about is if you're covered economically. And same thing for the funeral homes. You know, when they, they most of them, I think, want to do a good job and put on a nice, uh, respectful service to that person. And uh, the last thing they should have to worry about is is getting their money in or their end of the deal or worried about being ripped off. So. You know, like I always say, be careful, look out for each other. We'll continue to shine the light on folks like Mr. Cassidy and that are out there. You know, he's no longer with us. Uh, Hopefully he made peace and repented of what he did. And, you know, only God can judge him now. And hopefully he made right whatever he did. But, you know, that's between him and God at this point. But keep an eye out. There are always folks out there that are trying to scam any of us. And, you know, we'll shine a light on them on this show. Like I always said, we'll continue to bring these type of cases to you. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. This is a couple days here after Thanksgiving. And coming up, we got the Christmas season coming up. Got some nice episodes to talk to you about soon. Like I said, we do have the one on the NCAA scandals and whatnot. So stay tuned for these. Uh like us on facebook continue to support us uh like always say too you can donate to us we appreciate that there's a donation link on anchor on our host page for white collar crimes but as always the most important thing we just like to have you tune in and listen um you can also follow updates on this podcast on my website ryan-horn.com always glad to provide you uh voiceover services and going to uh, be getting a foster puppy here in a few days. I uh, haven't had any lately, so that's why we hadn't discussed it much. But we're getting back into that part of what we do here. That's also part of the services and things my wife and I are involved in and hope to help another little one find a happy home before Christmas, hoping for a Christmas miracle here. So, again, thank you for listening. God bless you. We will see you all next time on White Collar Crimes. <laughs>